Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. I'm Saudi American and a lesbian. I'm bi, trans Lebanese, and we're here recording in America and... And in Lisbon, Portugal, with Salim Haddad. Thank you so much for being here, Salim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful. Um, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and give a little background on yourself and like where you are, what you do? Yeah, so I'm uh, Salim Haddad. I'm a writer and an aid worker, although I feel like I'm doing less and less aid work as time goes on. I am half Lebanese Palestinian and half Iraqi German. And uh, I wrote the novel Guapa, uh, which was released in 2016. That's me. I live in Lisbon now. Yeah. Um, for the last year and a half. Um, there's an essay that you wrote called Leaving London for Lisbon. I liked that you described the word disquiet as the reason that you felt you needed to make a change. So since you've moved to Lisbon, do you feel like, are you used to the change of pace or um, is it still taking time to adapt? I think for the most part, I I came here to, to find more slow pace to my life. And, um, and I think I've achieved that. There are some days, you know, where you just think, after having lived in London, which is a really bustling metropolitan city for 11 years, can, you can miss the buzz a bit, but... Uh, for me, I mean, I'm I'm really happy with a with a quiet, laid back life. I can sort of focus on on my writing a bit more, uh, and live more cheaply. Yeah, it's very yeah. practical as well. <laughs> I think a lot of people, like I mean, myself included, we have you know we have such a hard time allowing ourselves to be completely at peace with slowness, like even if we crave it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that you found found it and like you found a good pace for yourself. And I've also heard uh, a lot of our artist friends complain about how like the art and literary world is too centered around like London and New York, and that it's like impossible mm-hmm. for struggling artists of all flavors to get heard or even live there anymore. Mm. So it's really heartening. Yeah, that definitely. And I don't think I realized it until moving to a place like Lisbon, where you do have an art scene or you have a number of artists from from around Europe, mainly that are here to work. And I really noticed that it just just being in a place like Lisbon, where you're not struggling too much to basically find something to eat and, and pay rent, that you, you can experiment a bit more creatively, yeah. artistically. Uh, and it's not just about creating art in, in a very sort of much more broad sense. I think it, it just allows for a playfulness that I think was really missing from my life in, in London. Yeah, that makes sense. Not How- everyone needs those large, gritty city stories anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe we have too many. Although although I find myself writing more about London now that I'm away from London. But I think that's natural, right? It makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. there's a nostalgia aspect and you're removed from it and you you can kind of put it into an image and as the song says there's no town like london yeah (laughs) what song is that is that really a song uh that is from sweeney todd the the demon of fleet street (laughs) okay yeah uh so it was sung both bitterly and earnestly like like (laughs) nostalgia-esque and bitterly depending on the it was a duet with two guys and they were talking about one guy was like talking about the positivity of London and the other one was very, very bitter about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like life in any big city. I feel like people talk about New York in the same way you love it and then also you kind of hate it sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I know, like a city that's so pulsing and alive is it can be exciting, but it's also not fun to every day be like, I need to just survive on, and get my basic necessities. Yeah, it's like you can't ignore the beauty, but you can't ignore the ugliness either. And so much of it is also on your own mindset, I think, and what you, I mean, it, it, on some days, you know, a big city can feel like a complete disaster and that everything's out to get you. And then the next day you're you're just in a different mindset and suddenly everything is perfect. And yeah, yeah, but that's the beauty of these big metropolitan cities, I think. Uh, you, you, What you bring to it is also what you take out of it. True. Um, before London, where did you live? I was living in Jordan uh, for a while. I was working there. Okay. And uh, then I was studying in Canada. Oh, was... did you mostly grow up in Jordan? Like spend your childhood there? Yeah, Jordan and Kuwait. Okay. A brief stint in Cyprus when we Ooh. left the Gulf War. Um, yeah, but only for like a year, I think, or a year and a half. And then and then we moved back to 
we moved to Jordan actually for the first time. Oh wow! Have you guys lived in in the? Are you guys are based in Texas, right? Yeah, we're in Texas. Houston, for me at least, is this really dirty, sometimes very corrupt city that has like this shining underground, you know? Yeah, you really have to look for the. That's my take on it. I've never lived in the Middle East. I have visited, but I've never had the experience of living. I mean, no, I've just visited, but okay. it's not the same. Oh, for people listening, by the way, that essay we just talked about, it's on Salim's uh, website, salimhaddad.com. So you can read more about what, like the transitions. Yeah, seriously, go read it. It's awesome. Links will be provided at the end of the episode as usual. The writing itself is really beautiful. And also, I like how your essays address, you know, various aspects of your life and who and what have influenced you and shaped you. For example, there was an essay about your grandmother and her experience being displaced in Palestine. And then there was another essay that I I loved talking about how queer Arabs are used as tools by people to justify their expressions of hatred and their own inner violence. So I don't know, like the question asked in the essay, which was really powerful, was who owns queer Arab bodies and also who is using them to spread their own propaganda. So I just I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that because it really articulates this feeling of always always feeling like others are speaking for us or they're using us as the scapegoats in so many situations. Yeah, like the religious fundamentalists love to rail against us. And then you've got like that short stint in Syria where like the government was actually like promoting like queer Arabs. And it was... It was what do you was, mean? Like, no, we had, oh. we had a guest on a previous interview where they were talking about their experience in Syria and how before the run-up to the civil war, the current one, the government was friendlier towards queer Arabs and oh, okay. and trying to be, sell them to the West is sort of like, oh, hey, we're the progressive non-barbarian types. Look how nice we treat our Oh, people. yeah, yeah. So, Good point. So I'm wondering, I was like, so I was kind of wondering if that was related. Um, well, I think, I mean, that, that essay, which I was really surprised by how, how much that essay resonated with people because I, I had written it. My, pub, my U.S. publisher at the time had approached me and said, okay, as part of the promotion for Guapa, I mean, I, you know, I'm a nobody, essentially. I don't have any social media following. I'm not well known. So when Guapa came out, I, you know, my publisher said, do you want to write an essay that sort of talks about the myths of queer Arabs? That was the brief. And I just sat there for two weeks trying oh, to wow. write. And, every, and everything was coming out really stinted and kind of frustrated, I think, because I was overthinking my audience, right? Because I was writing something and then thinking, oh, this is going to be read by some white person in the Midwest. And then, oh, but this person <laughs> is going to be read by a really conservative person in the Middle East. And, and so I just had all of these people in my mind criticizing what I was writing before I even put the words to the, to the page. And I think after, after two weeks of just sitting down in bed and not having written anything I was happy with, the essay suddenly just came out of me where I just said, like, I have no control over over writing about this because of all of these people. Right. And I think once I just decided to write about that, uh, about the fact about the fact that I can barely write about this because of all these different narratives that I'm, I'm having to speak to and speak against. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it took off. Yeah, it sounds like that feeling of frustration and thinking, oh, this person's going to think this and blah, 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 that actually helped form exactly yeah. the right words and the right, art, like the way to articulate this is why it's so frustrating. The most recent example I can think of in the United States was the Pulse nightclub shooting. A lot of the conservative talking heads were all about like, oh, hey, Arabs and Islam are killing queer people. That's why you should vote for conservatives and hate Arabs and Muslims too and I was just like really you're doing this and you're thankfully using this really yeah and thankfully like no one no one real bought into it you know so I was kind of glad about that sadly I think a lot of people I don't feel like... did buy into like conservatives well they're already they're already like they're already on board with that shit anyway true uh yeah that's true but using people who had just died in that way it's just so ugly but i think i think it's important to remember that we are we we are we're sort of in in a war situation um and i think it's important to remember that right like we're living in a time of of war of global war even though it might not seem so at the time or in the moment 
but I think we're in we're in like a very dark period um, yeah. globally speaking, and I think we need to recognize this, and it helps put things in in perspective. Um, and it also explains why people are are very defensive in general, why people are closing in on themselves, whether it's you know things like Trump and Brexit, or even at the micro level, like debates about cultural appropriation and identity mm-hmm. politics. This is all part of a global war. That's so true. The last person we we recorded with said she she runs an organization called Art to Action, and she was talking about how one of the most important projects she's worked on involved her talking to um, veterans who had gone to Iraq and uh, you know U.S. Army veterans who had gone to Iraq, and and she was like, these are the conversations that are so uncomfortable to have, but are so necessary. And um, just hearing their perspective of either the regret that they have, that they were part of that, or their reasoning for thinking it was necessary at the time. She was like, this was the most uncomfortable thing to have to have dialogue with these folks. But she said she got so much out of it. and. And she was saying, you know, this is the kind of thing we really need to be doing. And I guess, I guess it's right. I mean, I guess it is important to not be in an echo chamber. And I think that relates too to the varying audiences that are reading your work. You might be reaching, yeah, you never know. You might be reaching people who have completely different political values or whatever. But, but I know it's important for everyone to get the perspective. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think and I think it kind of speaks to, to this idea of compassion, which is really difficult. I mean, even when you said speaking to US soldiers who had come back from, from the war, my mind immediately just in a reactionary way just wanted to say, Well, I think we, we hear enough from them already. We don't right, have to right. Hear <laughs> yeah. Confession, I was like um, I'm when I heard her talk about it, I was like, Really? Those guys? But Yeah. But you know But but I think that there is something there about about compassion that I think we need to keep we need to try and keep in mind but it should work both ways as well and I just sort of feel like often compassion is extended to those soldiers and it's not extended back that's exactly um she did mention one veteran who was saying how much he loves the desert and then he said but I could never like I could never go live in the Middle East because of what I have done he was like I could never forgive myself and she said that was important for her to hear I mean it doesn't change anything but um yeah I don't know. It was just kind of good to hear that, even though it's, you know, something pretty small. But like, it yeah. did, it's interesting. I don't I, I agree that we're in a really dark era and it's very widespread. So that's why it might not feel it's not feeling like a tra- a war in the traditional sense, maybe. Well, I almost feel like it's like the new colonization, you know, because there's American troops and yeah. Ton, tons of countries, um, some yeah. of them, like, especially in the Middle East, and then basically now you've got the new proxy war in Syria between America, Russia, and the Islamic State, and they're kind of done at the moment, but they'll be back, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think the colonization already happened. I mean, we're, we're having this conversation in English. We all have American accents. I didn't even live in the U.S., and I have an American accent. Right, true. Um, yeah. I, I remember someone, some British guy that I worked with asked me once, um, why do you have an American accent? And I said, because I lived in a U.S. colony, i.e. Jordan. And he, he you know, of course, you, t- you talk about colonialism to any British person and they immediately just freeze up. and Kind of shut down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, but I think it's happened. And I think that now part of the struggle is, is the renegotiation of power at a global sense. But but I but I also, I mean, I'm not really qualified to talk about this stuff because it's just not really what I spend my days thinking about too much. Um, I th- I'm sure there are way more qualified people than me to talk about global warfare. <laughs> I know, same, same here. But, you know, sometimes, like, I feel like that about our podcast itself. Just like, why are we talking about it? We're just two English-speaking, you know, lesbians in Houston, and it's just... Yeah, sometimes I'm like, are we the right people to do this podcast? But then I'm like, I guess we all... Relatable. ...should have conversations. I don't Yeah, and I don't think that, that... And I think that, you know, part of the... I think I, I asked myself these questions as well when I was writing Guapa. And, and I, I started writing it, you know, in 2011. So that was a while ago now. But I, I was thinking, why, why am I writing this 
do I have the right to tell to tell uh, this story or, or do I have a right to take up space? And, and I think that, you, you know, we kind of need to work against this idea that there can only be one representative and one speaker. For sure. Uh, and I even, I remember like sometimes, I mean, it happened once, I think, in Canada where someone in the audience said like, why, you know, and uh, a queer Arab person said, why, why, why are you speaking on our behalf? And I remember saying like, I'm not speaking on your behalf. I right. just wrote a book and, and, I'm, and I'm talking about the book. I'm not saying, you know, as queer Arabs, this is how we feel, or blah, blah, blah. And I think that it's the same with, with your podcast, right? Like, I mean, your, your experience is valid as part of a, of a chorus of, of voices and experiences talking about, about these, these issues. True. Oh, plus, whose idea was it that, you know, only one person or one group can speak for everyone? That's true. We don't, we don't have one spokesperson. Um. And I think, and I think what you're doing as well. I mean, in terms of bringing in a lot of different queer Arab voices who are doing different things and and have different ideas about stuff. I mean, it's a really important platform. When we first started this, I was like, we're going to run out of stuff to talk about, and then I realized, no, we are just starting, and we're getting connected with so many people. Um, uh, but but yeah, so. So you talked about, in one of your essays, you talked about being hesitant to write guapa because of how it would impact your ability to return to the Middle East. And and you were saying that you had to decide between like putting your safety first and then regretting not writing it or write the book and face potential consequences. So I just really appreciate that you took that route. I know it's not easy. And have you had any have you had any issues returning to the Middle East? Have you been able to? Yeah, I, I mean, I return all the time. I haven't had any issues, um, but I'm also aware that these things are, you know, just because I haven't had any issues yet doesn't mean that it won't come up when it's politically convenient for it oh. to come up. Um, but I think I also think that life is life is short, and you know, there's nothing that I can do about it. I can't just stop myself out of fear. I think that's what we've been doing in the Middle East for a really long time. Too relatable, darling. Well, I don't. I don't have the same issue. I mean, I do have worries about ever going to Saudi Arabia, but it's I don't want to run my life just thinking about that and be like, oh, I'm t- I need to be careful just because I might go, Yeah. you know. So now that it's been a few years, um, what have you seen so far and what do you hope to see in the future when it comes to the impact that Guapa has had? I'm I'm always surprised. I mean, now I think I've gotten used to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but I'm but I'm always surprised. I was really surprised at how much people embraced the the novel um, and how people connected with with Rasa in in a lot yeah. of different ways. I, th- I I think it's really great. And sometimes I think in the, and that's the case with Guapa as well. Like the story, I think it came at the right point. You know, in yeah. time. Definitely. And I think people people were had been wanting to talk about these issues for so long, and I think Guapa provided a, a forum to have these discussions and and that's great you know i mean i think one thing that i sort of learned is that i as the writer i i sort of need to just relinquish control to the to the story and to the readers mm. and oftentimes the the re, you know the readers now have own guapa it's, i don't really own it i feel very disconnected from it actually uh, which is sort of what i was telling you when we were speaking about yeah. Just how I feel like the person who, who wrote Guapa is not the person that's speaking right now. Like that person is, I don't know where, like, where he is. It makes sense. And, and I think it was, it was driven, writing Guapa was very much trying to figure out a lot of questions and a lot of my own demons around shame, around identity, around the protests and where I came to it all. Um, and, uh, and I think I, I exercised the demons by writing it. And so at the end of the process, I sort of just felt not that these questions were settled, but that at least I had come to some sort of peace internally around. Right. You had been able to put it in those feelings into words. Yeah. Um, and, and, allow, and allow new demons to emerge. <laughs> yes. Time yeah. for replacements. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I have to ask, like, professionally, how hard was it to find, like, a, a publisher for the book? Like, when it wasn't our, easy. Like, Sorry, go on. Oh, I was like, one of our friends uh, who's a playwright was pro- was trying to promote his work and like it was easier like in New York and the West, but he was also trying to find a way to get it out in the Middle East. And, you know, that was a little scary. Yeah. His, so his name is Adam El Sayyid. He wrote a play called Drowning in Cairo. Previous episode. He said that in Cairo, he had to spread it by word of mouth and like 
the audience crammed into an apartment and, you know, no one could really talk about it outside of that. And but in New York and like San Francisco, he was able to promote it. And, you know, so like how's the promotional differences? How is how did the promotion go of it? Like getting it, getting the whole thing out there. So finding I mean, it was finding an agent was really hard. And I mean, I think I sent to uh, over 30, maybe 35 different agents. And I got a couple of people who a lot of people said this is really well written but i don't think there's a market for it and i got two agents in the end who who made me an offer and i went with with one of them so that's out of 35 and even then he was a pretty well-known agent but he struggled to find a publisher for for the for the book because people just said publishers said there's there's no market for this for this story they were wrong thankfully yeah they were wrong and and i think I mean, again, this is in around 2013, 2014, and I think a lot has changed in the last seven years. But I don't think we're there yet by any means. But I do feel that things are, are moving in a positive direction, at least in terms of, you know, these stories like these finding their audience and, and people realizing from a marketing perspective and from a business perspective that there is there is a market for, for these stories, as awful as that sounds. I mean, I don't really believe in marketplace for art at all. Uh, I'm really against it and just the reality of publishing. In terms of promotion, I, I really wasn't sure whether there was whether I was going to be able to, to do any promotion in, in the Middle East. I mean, I, I didn't go to Cairo and that's just, I mean, I have felt uncomfortable going to Cairo ever since 2013. So it wasn't somewhere that I really uh, dug too, too deep into. But um, I mean, I was surprised that Lebanon, I had events in Lebanon and Jordan and Dubai my event in Jordan was, was entirely in Arabic and it just attracted a very different audience. And that was a really beautiful moment, actually, because so much of the novel centered around experiences that I had in Jordan, uh, which is like a really conservative country, although people don't realize it. Often you think about just one sliver of a few neighborhoods in Amman as, as representation. But Jordan's a very conservative tribal Yes, society. And so having that, you know, the, the an event in Arabic for the book with, with a really big and a diverse turnout gave me a lot of hope. Um, oh, good. About, yeah, I think it's there. And I think people want to talk about these issues. And I also think that there's just so much happening in the Middle East that to a certain degree, talking about sexuality is not on that high on their agenda. That, that's a good uh, point. But at the same time, I mean, I my experience has been positive, but I, I totally know that, you know, queer spaces are still really under attack, even in places like Beirut, you know, we had like queer mm-hmm. pride being shut down and, and the organizer was arrested or something. I don't know the exact story. Yeah, so, I mean, that's yeah. still, yeah. And, and this is even before going into Egypt, which is just a complete shit show that, yeah, uh, we, we all know about. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's mixed, right? Like it's. Yeah, my experience was more or less positive. At the same time, though, the the novel still isn't published into Arabic, and I don't know whether okay. that whether that's a testament to to the dysfunctions of the Arabic publishing industry, which I think is partly to blame, but also just a lot of a lot of Arab publishers, Arabic publishers, have said this novel will be banned. Like it'll so, be censored. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, I was wondering about. Yeah, I mean, in yeah. in Dubai, you don't find my my novel in, in bookstores, even though you have other novelists, some of whom are, are gay, which is kind of oh. upsetting. Um, yeah, so I, but I mean, Western authors, right? So I mean, oh, okay. there's like this weird yeah. erasure of like, okay, if you're a Western queer person, then you can sort of, you're allowed on our bookshelves. But if you're Arab and queer, then you're not. And oh. not only is my novel not on the, not on the shelves, it's also not in the system. It used to be two years ago. And they've removed it. So even when you search for the novel in the system of the of the of some bookstores, you don't find. Oh. Um, yeah. That's really disappointing. Cause, yeah. Because I know it's like you want people that this book is mostly for to have access to it, and that's that is really disappointing. Mm. Yeah. By the way, um, we watched Marco last night. So, Switching yeah. gears a little. Um, I, you said it premieres March 31st, right? Well, actually, it's it's showing. Um, it's premiering in Tunisia uh, on March 25th, which oh, okay, about two days, almost. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then the UK premiere will be March 31st. Yeah. So oh, you guys okay. are like, 
first to see it. But yes. Oh my God, yes. I'm so honored. It, it, I can't stop thinking about it. We watched it last night and it, um, I guess I don't want to give away the whole plot, but, uh, but, but okay. Uh, <laughs> spoilers coming up, you know, we'll, uh, skip the timestamp. We will insert this later. <laughs> no, I, well, I'll talk about the themes that come up, but I won't like give okay. away the whole plot. So the themes that came up, for example, it's only 20 minutes, but you get the the notion of someone moving to the West and then having to deal with people pitying, looking down on him, even though he's had a whole life, probably a whole professional life. And um, also the shame of being in the West, the shame that being in the West often makes people feel about being Arab that comes up and then how much an immigrant goes through, specifically going through the refugee process and navigating the legality of it and then having to figure out how to start over in a new country, figuring out how to survive. Then of course you add the element of being queer. So all of this is captured in just 20 minutes and it's absolutely stunning. Do you know like, yeah, it's incredible. Seriously, it's genius. Do you know how people can access the film once it's out? Do you know yet? Um, I well, I, I mean, unless you disguise yourself as a festival um, <laughs> organizer, <laughs> then I can I can I'll send you a, a screen or copy. No, but I I don't know at the moment when it will be available online. Um, okay. It's yeah. I mean, it's something that the that the producer of the film is is sort of in charge of. Um, my okay. role is was the writer and director and that's really where it ends. But I hope soon, I really hope soon. And I'm kind of, uh, and I kind of like the idea of it being available online for people around the world to be able to access it in a way that Guapa, you know, is not at the moment. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the, how the film will be received. I'm really glad that you, that you enjoyed it. Um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a quiet film. Yeah. It is, yeah. But I think we were, like, I was shouting out, like, every minute or so, like, oh, my God, too relatable, you know? Because I was, like... Ellie was yelling, like, every few minutes. It was oh, just... For me, it was, like, a lot of it was these two two men meet for... Uh, I don't want to put Don't this... give away Oh, anything. my God. So, basically, two men... No, no, give it. I mean, I think it's fine. I think we Okay, fine. <laughs> okay. So we have uh, what I assume a slightly older Lebanese man. Oh, not too old. He is gorgeous, by the way. And um, uh, are you talking about the actor? Yeah, yes. the actor. Yeah. Yeah. Ellie yeah. was like at the beginning. She was like, "Damn!" He, when he took his shirt off, she was like, "Damn!" <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay. If if we get stuck on their appearances, I am going to just gush, and it's okay. Shutting anyway. up. <laughs> I think, okay, listen, knowing both of the actors, I think both of them would be very flattered and wouldn't mind if we just spent the next 20 minutes talking about it. <laughs> Good to know. And Sorry. they would kill me saying that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Hey, it's how you feel. Sorry. Look, they're very talented. They're, they're, they're very talented. Yeah, they are. They're okay. really amazing actors. Okay, so older Lebanese man established in London. Not that much older, but... You know, well, he's been there longer. Yeah, ten years. Yeah, and he basically hires this younger younger man for a massage, air quotes, because basically he's working as an escort. It seems like. Um, correct me if I'm getting the details wrong. Yeah. But, Hello. Okay. Okay. But um, so the, through this encounter, it's like the escort's sort of identity is ambiguous, and the Lebanese guy is kind of like tilting his head. Is like, is he? Is he? Is he Arab? But this guy is not saying he's Arab. He's, he's, he's from Barcelona. Well, yeah, he he like made a different identity for himself so that people would take him more seriously. Yeah, because like uh, serious, you know, sexy young man from Barcelona. Ooh, so so steamy, so hot. The mystique. Yeah, yeah. And they hook up and they start talking and. Well, they don't. Really. Well, okay, they get they get into the same. Uh, they they meat okay all right sorry i'm kind of fangirling myself so i need to shut up <laughs> <laughs> um they, 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 he starts massaging him and yeah then, you know yeah and they and they have the and he's like where are you from he's like barcelona he says it with this arabic inflection and he's like 
Then he starts speaking. The other one starts speaking Arabic. Yeah. And it's like, I'm calling you out right now. <laughs> and and the guy, yeah, and the guy who's working, this sense of relief just shows. And he's like, oh, my God, someone I can speak Arabic with, someone queer I can speak Arabic with. And he kind of talks, lets he, out a lot of his life story. Yeah, he basically yeah. drops the, quote, profess- professional facade and just like, oh, my God. And I'm like, did this just turn into a therapy session? Yeah, well, it was really, exactly. yeah, it was really beautiful because then he just kind of laid his head on the other guy's shoulder and he's like, I just, I need to talk about this in my own language. Like, I, I need to speak Arabic again and talk about the things, the little things I miss. And it was just really, it was beautiful. Um, the end is, is sad, but it's also important and I think realistic. Do you want to, do we want to go in depth or we just want to be like... I don't want to spoil it. Okay. Hopefully when this gets online, which we hope it does, go watch it. It is amazing if there's a film festival nearby check check the listings for it please please is there are you going to keep the website updated if on if it's shown anywhere yeah for sure uh we we will but yeah i mean i'll 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 I'll, as soon as i i mean the best way to know about showings is to follow uh marco short film on instagram i think is the most active i don't i don't control that account too much but it'll it it's sort of anytime we have a a, week we announce a screening that's where it first goes Mark okay. Yeah. Okay. But okay. So going on from there, it's but even though this was twenty minutes, I felt there was like almost a full movie's worth, like you know, hour and a half of like just emotional content. Because uh, like again, I was basically like pausing every so often and be like too related. It's like oh my, God. and this is tough because it's like I don't want to give away too much, and but I also want to talk about you know the ending and. I can, I mean, I can tell you a bit about the filming process. And so, I mean, this, this is the first, I, I had never even thought about doing a film before. And so when someone approached me about the idea, I thought, okay, I'm, I, you know, I'm not even that big of a film watcher, actually. So I just approached it as, as just a new form to, to tell a story, a new, a new medium to tell a story, which, which it is, I guess. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, this, this is partly based on, on uh, I don't know if you if you recognize elements of the, of the film because it was inspired by an anecdote I told that was in the queer Arab essay um, oh. that happened to a friend of mine in Lebanon who had which which is a true story he he told me oh there there are quite a few Syrian refugees who are like offering escorting services on Grinder in Beirut and he thought it'd be interesting to to um, connect with one and then I think the reality of it just became you know it's, it's a nice idea in theory but then i think there's like an exploitative element that emerged when you're actually confronted with this person who's, yeah. who's doing this yeah because... um, so we sort of used that as a as a starting point of of the story and uh, and yeah we, we we kind of went from there and i think different people will take different things from the story i think i was kind of really interested in exploring the idea of intimacy and yeah intimacy between two diff- very different but also very similar immigrants um yeah you know, an immigrant and a refugee and the different sort of variations of that people sort of have when they're away from home because one of the things that did strike me was the classism in it like the Lebanese mm-hmm. man was like upper class family he had the yeah. option to go the Syrian gentleman known as Marco didn't was like came on a shipping container just the just the level of freedoms those backgrounds afforded them or didn't it just was like whoa because i know talking about like like social and wealth classes is kind of taboo but it's also like it needs to be discussed because like yeah like this guy like the Lebanese dude had you know all the advantages he was basically got to go to london be queer have a professional life have this really cool apartment and syrian dude is just trying to make rent you know from like from the from the home office handout and like the escorting he's doing on the side and yeah well not rent but you know like basic yeah, expenses yeah. and yeah it's and i mean i think i think there's also at least i don't know what the discourse is in in the u.s i think maybe it might be slightly different but you know in in europe the idea of a refugee is just a very big it's very big in the public imagination right mm-hmm. even sort of bigger than the actual problem itself it's just like this boogeyman that people attach all these different things to and so I was really kind of interested in exploring that so even the idea of the refugee 
of the refugee wearing a mask to sort of disguise himself and and the implications of removing that mask. Yeah. But I also wanted, and this sort of hints towards the ending, is that there, even from well-meaning liberals in Europe, there's this sense of, you know, the refugees are suffering on our behalf. Um, and even you, you find it in a lot of the discourse and, and a lot of the ways that even liberal people talk about refugees. And I, and I really wanted to, to subvert that and to sort of play against that. So this idea that Marco's own suffering, Marco is not going to let his own suffering stand in for the suffering that Omar is, is going through. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his own, his life is, is his own and he's not going to alleviate someone else's pain uh, or sort of stand in for someone else's pain, which is what to a certain degree Omar was trying to was trying to do. For those who don't know, in the United States, refugees are also treated as this political boogeyman and football, although it's, you know, the Trump administration has taken measures to cut back on the amount of uh, Syrian and otherwise Middle Eastern immigrants or refugees. The focus is more mostly on the southern border, although whenever they want to, like, you know, whip up the, the Republican base, they do trot out, oh, these Iraqi and Syrian refugees, you know, they're so awful, yeah. they're terrorists. And also, like, we need to stop giving handouts to people from outside the U.S. And it's like, no, you have no idea how little someone gets when they, like, financially. When someone arrives, they are they are expected to pay back the flight cost. It's like people fleeing their country, and then they, they're expected within, I think it's six months or some very short am- amount of time, they're expected to pay back the cost of the flight. And... I think people just aren't aware of that or don't care to think about that. Um, mm. People are having to start over and, and figure it out on their own, mostly. In a country where they may or may not have, speak the language, in a country where they may or may not have friends or contacts, or in the case of queer Arabs, um, in a place where they may or may not have any social support whatsoever in their community. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not pretty here, is what, we're, what I'm trying to yeah, say. And then, like, no. yeah. yeah, and yeah. instead of yeah, instead of looking at folks who go through that as the people to be pitied or the weak pe- or people who are weak, like the strength needs to be recognized. Yeah, because like look at all these badasses who came here as refugees and made it and don't need mm-hmm. anyone's pity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's true, and I think. I mean, just to circle back to, to what we were first talking about, about leaving leaving London, I think, you know, there, there there is a certain, I think part of what I was escaping was also this kind of narrative that is really overwhelming, that someone who's queer and Arab and an immigrant to the UK, you, you are inevitably part of this really powerful narrative, and, and you can try and speak out against it or try and subvert it, but it's, it's so powerful, and I think sometimes you kind of just need to, if you have the the luxury to be able to to do so to just say okay i need a, i need a time out of it i need to sort of rediscover myself on my own basis and not always just in reaction to this dominant narrative um and i think marco does that as well it was very important for me that the that the film was in arabic and that the it's just two two arab guys there's no i didn't want the, the refugee to be uh, standing in in relation to uh, a Westerner. I thought it was important to I keep like that, yeah. Westerner out of it because because it's always through through their eyes and through their gaze, and I just kind of wanted to subvert that a bit and change it up. Yeah, as two uh, Middle Eastern descended women, thank you, just thank you for that. Just because, like, every time I see you know some sort of film about like queer slash immigrant anything, it's always through oh. And here's the white person to be the audience stand in. And it's like frustrating because yeah. although I get it, but I also oh, like I'm it's like I've lived I lived that, but I'm also lived that a little too much. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, you're welcome. And actually, it's funny that you, you know, because even though even though the film is was directed by me, like a, a cisgendered um, man and features to to uh, male actors, it was actually the, the cinematographer. So the person literally holding the camera was a woman. And then the editor was also a woman. I think that they brought something. I mean, it wasn't, we just, we just picked the best person for the job. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it just so happened that all of, including the casting director and the production director, the production um, 
set designers, sorry, they were all women. And I think that brought something really interesting to the story that I that I wasn't expecting. Um, and that's sort of the beauty of, of doing a film that I realized that, you know, that sitting down in a room and writing a book, it's very much on you, whereas doing, you know, directing a film, you're bringing together these different creative energies from all these different people with different visions and and it produces interesting results. You can sort of see a little bit of everyone in, in the final product. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's it's cool like, to know about. Upside, you are not totally in control. Um, downside, you're not totally in control. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah but, exactly. Exactly. Like even your own, so like even the film you wrote and directed can come and surprise you. Right. Yeah. Completely. Completely. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, the, fil- the film was not, uh, the final product was not what I had initially gone in with. But I think there was something really interesting that did come out of it. And you can sort of see all these different fingerprints on it. That's so cool. You're also about to publish, or I mean, sorry, a short story of yours is also about to publish, uh, Song of the Birds, which was really good. And can you remind me, it's in Palestine. Is it? Yeah. So so it's this really cool initiative, which uh, if you guys whoever's listening hasn't heard about it, it's really worth checking out. So there's this publisher in the UK called Comma Press, and they have started this really interesting uh, series of anthologies where they they take a, a particular place and they and they talk to writers who are from that place and they ask them to imagine their, you know, write a sci-fi short story, you know, inspired by their plays. Um, so it, I think there was one, the first one was about Iraq and it was called Iraq plus 100, which is, uh, and they asked various Iraqi writers to write about, to write a story set in Iraq 100 years after the U.S. invasion. So in 2000 and whatever that is. Yeah. 2119. That's hard math. Yeah. 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 No, 21 (laughs) or whatever. Anyways. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, that was published a few years ago, Iraq plus 100. And it's, and it's really interesting. And they, um, I think they just released a similar one about Iran, sci-fi, science fiction from Iran. And then the next one that's coming out in May is Palestine, Palestine plus 100. So 100 years after the 1948 uh, Nekba. So stories set in 2048. And, and they asked me to contribute. And I had never written a, a science fiction story before. So it was kind of interesting to be able to explore that that angle yeah uh, and i'm really proud of the result i think it's i think it's a really good it's, story it's so um, good um the yeah the dystopian future element is just it's trippy and it's like oh alia is downplaying it basically her favorite everything like fiction is always dystopian future something it is um, you should totally check this this, this uh, you should totally get into iraq yeah i'm going to i yeah I just think dystopian future, everything is so powerful and yeah, just makes you think about all of the effects of what our generation is causing. Yeah, so this short story that Salim wrote, it's Song of the Birds and it's really good. Even Guap, even with Guapa, I with the the way that you combined a bunch of cities, I guess into one mm. kind of fictional city, I felt like mm. that was a little sci-fi. Um, yeah, you're right. You're which right. is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I got that. I got I that, that vibe. Liberate. Yeah, no, you're right. I think you're you're absolutely right. Even though I don't think I had gone in saying that I was going to do that. I mean, I do like dystopian. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, when it when it's um, yeah. Not, when it's not, done uh, well, yeah. When it's done well, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you're right. I think that I think that it is to a certain degree. It's got this, uh, but I think. And I think that's that's part of the the motivation for encouraging writers from the Middle East and from the Arab world to explore sci-fi and dystopian fiction is that I think there is a very liberating element to it where you can, you sort of look at your situation through a new lens and you explore Mm -hmm. the politics and culture of of the culture through a different perspective. Oftentimes, I think our literary tradition is quite stuck in realism, and I think that break, you know, forcing people to break out of that can be creatively very interesting. Yeah, I think so too, because it still it still keeps in a lot of realistic elements. It's just there is a fictional There's... aspect of it where you are able to fantasize or 
imagine like it, you have to use your imagination and i also feel like and I'm, I'm more in love with cyberpunk which is a slightly different variation on the dystopian future sci-fi theme but mm-hmm. uh i always feel like it gives you a little breathing distance from the current issues you know yeah. like like yes um whatever current issue in your current place sucks but you know how will we be de- will we be dealing with this in like a hundred years? Can we like what is the effects on the everyday person sort of thing? Yeah, and and I also think it might help, especially for authors in the Middle East, just to give themselves a little fictional distance, not only for themselves but for the idea of getting published at all. You know, mm-hmm. I, just on the topic of cyberpunk, uh, have you read uh, Tentacle by Rita Indiana? Uh, it's on my reading list now. Okay, yeah, because I think I think it's it's sort of really interesting queer cyberpunk, uh, ecological dystopian. It's it, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Oh, check it out. Uh, yeah, right now I'm my current queer dystopian future is uh, fifth season. So, uh, written, is what the book is uh, the fifth season by N.K. Jeminson. I basically it's a black queer dystopian future, and it's. Interesting. What, what I'm currently reading. So uh, Tentacle is now on the list. Nice. So thank you. I'm always looking for new books and new everything. Of... <laughs> we call our reading lists because we, we both have such a backlog of books we have to read. And we're, we always call it our, our pile of shame. Like we'll never get through it. <laughs> I know. I know the feeling. And, and I've got this weird compulsion where I just, I, I find it so difficult to not finish reading a book. Oh um, yeah, same. I have to finish. I'm such a completionist. <laughs> yeah, that that's the pile of shame for me. Is all those books that are sort of unfinished somewhere, and I, you know, I keep meaning to get back and to finish get it. Back. But I just, yeah. 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 Sometimes you kind of just have to tell yourself, you know what? It's it's okay. I'm just going to let this go. Yeah, I know. I'm particularly bad because I t- typically buy way more books than I ever have time to read. So there's there's like a stack of books on my nightstand right now that I'm trying to get through, but they're all fun and awesome. And they're all like, shit, I need to get through this. But yeah. I keep finding another book. And it's like, oh, this is super interesting. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We all get it. Yeah. <laughs> I am so glad I switched to digital format books just because it's, we have space in our We actually apartment. have space now. Yeah. That's, yeah. I know. It's like, it's like, I love having the physical books, but it just, there's only enough, a, a certain amount of space. Yeah, no, I totally hear you. My, my boyfriend now only, he doesn't read physical books. He only does Kindle. Oh, okay. Um, and, and his life just seems so much simpler than me, where I sort of still <laughs> still have a book fetish. So I kind of like to... Yeah. Touch it, but... I, I definitely have the book fetish going on, but I also have realized if I continue this book fetish, we won't be able to see the walls. <laughs> Well, that would be cool to have a book covered walls, but please I know there's a limit. Please don't encourage this. <laughs> there's a limit. This is not healthy. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this. It really means a lot to us. Um, no problem. Yeah, it was really good getting to talk. And if people want to follow you, is, do you think Instagram is the best way? Like follow what's going um, on? Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, Instagram or Twitter. I'm trying to tweet more. Okay. Uh, yeah, I sort of, I don't know. Yeah, Instagram or Twitter. Okay. Good. Sounds yeah. good. Facebook okay. is fine too, but I mean, I, I don't really go on there much these days. I'm liking Wait. Instagram more lately. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, do, try to get into Instagram, and I'm like, I feel like it's just going to be like Twitter for me where I have, where I just say like this the most banal and inane things and that's my ellie of the queer arabs twitter so fair fair but okay you can find us on the queerarabs.com you can find us on twitter instagram and facebook at the queer arabs and you can email us at the queer arabs at gmail.com and then we have an arabic side of the podcast run by our friend ahmed and you can get in touch with him at thequeerarabsinarabic at gmail.com. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Salim, for being here. Um, um, follow Salim on social media. We will be posting links on our website to all the social media and everything we can link writing-wise. And yeah. yeah, so please, it's awesome. It's fun. 
It is. Thank you Thank again. You. <laughs> I can't wait to, I really want to visit Lisbon even more now, just hearing about it. I've always wanted to go. It's, it's lovely. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really, it was not on my radar until 2016. And then, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's I, yeah, it's great. I really love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it just, it sounds really refreshing and beautiful. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, it has its fair share of, you know, challenges. Its own issues, yeah. Yeah, of course. And, and my essay was, you know, it was, it's hard to write also while also trying to acknowledge that, that, that you know, Lisbon suddenly being on everyone's radar does right, come yeah. for, for the, the local for, for local people here. So I was in two minds about writing that because I just felt, do I want to sort of give, put more attention on Lisbon? And then I just thought, you know what? It's such an important experience in your life. Yeah. It, it makes sense. Yeah. Actually, uh, okay, so Anthony Bourdain actually complained about the same problem. Like he was going to all these like hidden gems, like neighborhood restaurants. And the moment he put them, he published about them in any format, they blew up and it sort of like pushed the locals out. And so he was, and like, even the ones where like one time he, uh, he went to Italy and he went to this one restaurant. He said it was awesome. It was excellent. But he's like, I love it, but I don't want to kill it by saying Mm. its name. And even though he did that, you know, people found it, we found it. Oh, is that the one we went yeah. to? Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and... I didn't know no, that was the one. It sucks for us to do it, but the food was amazing. <laughs> I know. Is I'm, that the one that you made us wait in the rain for an hour? For? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> now it makes sense. But you know, there's like this serious problem, and I... and I um Like, there's this serious problem happening around the world when it comes to mass tourism because of just the fact that we can all travel much easier yes. more affordable people hear about things through word of mouth so much quicker so you have places like Lisbon which suddenly in a matter of like just a couple of years become hotbeds of tourism and mm-hmm. and and I, and I mean Madrid's like that Barcelona has been Definitely. completely transformed oh god and yeah. so I, I wonder, I mean, I'm sure there must be some really interesting stuff that's been written about it, but I haven't come across anything. But uh, yeah, if you do, if you do come across any good writing on, on yeah, I'll pass it on. Let me know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah that would be interesting. Not very queer Arab, but you know. But still, I mean, the, the show isn't about important. queer Arabs per se. It's more like what we're interested in. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah it really is. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, this was a lot of fun. No this was great. Yeah. yeah, it was great. I appreciate it so much. Um, and thank yeah, you. we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Okay, so I'm reading Tentacle by Rita Indiana, and it's pretty awesome. I'm very thankful for this recommendation. It is dark, it is cyberpunk, it is queer as all fuck, and I'm still going through it, so I don't want to like give it a full review yet, but I'm really liking it. Just saying. Thank you.